Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sroka. I have a really good show for you today. I'm excited about today's show. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Last week, we discussed, or I guess two weeks ago, last episode, we discussed indigenous literacies. And I think sometimes, at least for me, when we talk about indigenous literacies or even talking about teaching in more critical ways or being more culturally responsive in our pedagogies, sometimes to me, it can sound like sometimes these more kind of theoretical and abstract conversations, and there's a lack of concrete teaching approaches that employ these methods. So if I want to be more culturally responsive and I want to be more inclusive in my teaching, what does that look like? Well, today we're going to talk about one specific framework that we can use to achieve these aims as we discuss, as I talk with Dr. Heather Puel uh, and her article, Exploring Young Adult Texts Within the Historically Responsive Literacy Framework with Pre-Service Teachers. Before we get into that discussion, though, a couple of reminders. This podcast continues to grow, and for that, I thank you, listener, for listening. I again ask that you share this podcast with your colleagues. If there is, you know, maybe an appropriate episode to even share with your students, if it matches up with what we're talking about in class, I think that would be awesome. Uh, if you're practicing some of the things that we're talking about on this podcast, but you feel like maybe you're not receiving appropriate administrative support, I think it would be appropriate to share this podcast or particular episode with your administrator. And if you have done so, let me now pause and say, hi, administrator. I'm glad you're here. Also, uh, I encourage you guys to please rate and review the show on kind of whatever platform you listen to the podcast on. All right. So today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Heather Puel. During her 15 years in education, Heather Puel has taught middle school and high school English language arts, worked as a secondary ELA district coordinator, and is now an assistant professor in the literacy language arts and literature program in the College of Education at the University of Houston Clear Lake. She specializes in English language arts education and secondary literacy. Her research centers on exploring pre-service teachers' identities through authentic literacy and anti-racist teaching practices. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Heather Pugh. I'm now excited to be joined in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast by Dr. Heather Pugh, author of Exploring Young Adult Text Within the Historically Responsive Literacy Framework with Pre-Service Teachers. Heather, thank you for joining us. And can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this work? Sure. Um, so I've been an educator for 15 years. Um, for most of those years, I've been utilizing reading. Maybe I started reading YA texts just because I love them so much, um, but utilizing them in the classroom and with pre-service teachers. And it kind of led me, using YA text led me to thinking about pre-service teachers' literacy lives. You know, their reading and writing lives either outside of or inside the classroom. Um, and what that looked like, because a lot of the pre-service teachers that I was encountering were coming in and they were illiterate. They could be successful at reading. They were reading school stuff, but outside of that, they chose not to read. Um, and so what I was researching to begin with is just their literacy lives. Could they be impacted by the pre-service teacher classroom? Um, and so we were using representative and inclusive text, YA text. Um, and then I started realizing that I was 
we were doing all of that, but they didn't really know how to use those representative and inclusive YA texts once they got to the classroom. We weren't doing enough with culturally responsive education and culturally relevant teaching. Um, and so I started incorporating that, but it wasn't until I read um, Muhammad's Cultivating Genius for the Historically Responsive Literacy Framework um, that I said, oh, that is not only theoretical, but it's concrete enough that I think that if I pair this with why literature, with secondary methods, I think that pre-service teachers would have a real concrete way of creating a culturally responsive classroom through both avenues. So that's kind of how I got into this work. Yeah, I think that's that's wonderful. I, I mean, I interview a, a wide range of people on this podcast, and sometimes I just find myself interested in new, new things. And other times, like Heather talking to you, I think it very much aligns with kind of my background, my interests, my my dissertation work was on the um, reading habits of in-service English teachers. Um, and part of my lit review was uncovering the fact that you just mentioned that even education majors don't read, even English education majors don't read as much as maybe we would think. And so it's interesting exploring that. And then this this other idea of young adult text and its place in the classroom, I think um, right now there is kind of this this. Uh, a movement and a realization that we need more kind of engaging text in in, in the classroom. Um, yet, I, I agree with you that maybe we haven't equipped um, our pre-service teachers with the tools needed to um, to teach these texts in the classroom. Um, I think we often find ourselves as English teachers modeling or as teachers modeling what the teacher before us did. But what if the teacher didn't use mm -hmm. these types of texts? Now, all of a sudden, we're, we're have something new. So, okay. So, you use this framework, historically responsive literacy framework, um, that you think fits this. Can you talk a little bit about what that framework is and why do you think it fits so nicely for, for pre-service teachers and teaching these texts? Yeah, so um, Golding Muhammad published Cultivating Genius in 2020, um, and the, it's a model and a theory, the historically responsive literacy framework, and it is based on her research into 19th century Black literary societies um, and the things that Black people did at a time when other people did not want them to read and write and be literate and how they personally and academically pushed their literacy forward. Um, and so her idea is if we can take this Black excellence from these 19th century literary societies and use it in schools today, that we would then also be able to reach and teach and grow um, our historically marginalized populations, right, our Black and Brown students. Um, and... So the, she came up with, after studying the society, she came up with the four tenets. And so the four tenets are um, identity, intellect, skills, and criticality. Um, and then uh, her newest book actually also adds joy, but that wasn't in the book when I was doing this study. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the historically responsive literacy framework. Um, it's basically... She stated this in the book, and I think this is really important. And it's not new, but it's important. She says we need... Um, methods and curriculums created by Black educators for Black children. And I think that's really, really important. And it's, again, you know, we've got culturally responsive and relevant teaching and, and everything. And so hers just kind of is supported by all of that and is also a model. Yeah, I think that's great because, yeah, I think often when we talk about culturally responsive and culturally sustained pedagogies, um, at least in the classroom, we also talk, we often talk about kind of in a theoretical way mm -hmm. and how we need to be Kind of moving towards this direction, but we don't really get specifics. And so your article gets into specifics, um, which I like. So can you talk a little about your study? 
So you broke it down, I think, into this identity, intellect, skills, and criticality. Um, can you talk about what you found within your own students with, within those categories? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just a little background on the study itself. Um, it was a YA lit course, and okay. I basically kept the course as much the same as I could. We already looked into like um, inclusive and representative YA literature. We already looked at culturally um, relevant teaching, um, but we, again, we were missing that practical piece, right? And so I just wove the HRL into our weeks of YA literature. Um, and then by the end of the semester, students had created a unit plan, an HRL unit plan, based on one or a few of the YA texts that they read during the class. Um, and so overall, it was a pretty successful endeavor, and students took to it as well. Um, so for the findings, um, I do the findings within the four tenets of the framework. So the first one, cultivating identity. Um, and by the way, the way that I did this was I just, they had learning goals in their um, unit plans based on the learning goals that Mohammed puts in in hers, um, for one for each tenant. Um, and I just compared their learning goals to her definition of that learning goal and whether that was a successful match or whether they maybe misunderstood some of the terms. Um, and they also made connections between YA Lit and the HRL. So I was looking at both of those things. All right. So just to clarify, they're choosing their own text that they read. So they all could be reading different texts and doing this. And they're creating these their own learning goals based on um, the tenets. Yes. Yes, okay. and a whole unit plan, but I didn't look at the rest of the unit plan because it was just too much. <laughs> so yeah, just sure. looking at how successful the learning goals were using these texts. Okay. Um, so the findings in the end, as far as identity, cultivating identity, um, Muhammad states that in the learning goal for cultivating identity, we want students to learn deeply about themselves and about other people, um, learn about their histories and truths and be able to live in harmony with people who do not look or know the word as they do, which is, I think, a, a really powerful statement. Um, and seven of the eight unit plans successfully matched that those ideas. Um, and I think when it comes to identity, one of the reasons for that is identity is something that a lot of people feel comfortable talking about, right? We all have an identity. Um, it tends to be socially neutral if you're not getting into systemic issues. Um, and so because of that, and because why literature is centered on identity, right? And so there were so many opportunities for these students to pull identity from these books and put it into a learning goal for the ideas in their unit plan. Yeah, can I ask a quick follow-up question by identity? Yeah. So when, when you talk about identity, are you talking about the identity of the reader or the identity of the characters within a text? That's a good question. So we are talking, the learning goal is the identity of the student, um, okay. learning about their own identity and learning about other people's identities, but that could happen through the character in a text. Okay. So it could kind of go both ways, but the ultimate goal is for the student to um, recognize, think about their identity and think about other people's. Yeah. And I think in terms of kind of English class, I think sometimes we talk a little bit about, about identity and kind of walking in someone else's shoes or walking in someone else's skin. But I don't know if we explicitly talk about, like when we read The Great Gatsby, I don't know if we're explicitly having conversations around identity. So I think this is kind of a specific way, would you say, to that applies 
maybe more so to these YA texts than to other texts? Um, I think it applies to all texts that we use, right? Because, I mean, if you think about The Great Gatsby, there's so many different identities to explore. There are social identities, cultural identities. Um, but I think that the difference is that identity in a YA text is something that feels real for students. Mm -hmm. um, it very much is relevant. It connects to their real life. Whereas The Great Gatsby, those ideas might still be relevant, but it happened in the past, whereas many YA texts are happening right now in this moment. And so it feels easier to look mm -hmm. through identity in something that is is happening to you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and clearly based on your findings, students were able to, to find that identity. Um, so, so what about the next one, intellect? Okay, so intellect. Um, so intellect is one that um, I'm really very excited that Muhammad included it in the HRL because intellect is something that I think in, in standardized, our schools have become very standardized, mm -hmm. right? And within that, we tend to push intellectualism kind of aside in favor of teaching and nobody can see me, but I'm quoting the skills. <laughs> um, and so Muhammad defines that learning goal as connecting students to a world topic um, and answering the question of how are they going to build knowledge um, and what are they becoming smarter about? And I really love that question. Mm -hmm. Like, what are they becoming smarter about? Um, and so I found that pre-service teachers did just as well with intellect as they did with identity. Um, so, and because it was an action research study, I changed some things as we went, right? So, um, oh, no, sorry, that's for skills. But they did really good um, about thinking about how students' intellect was going to grow by using these texts and other paired texts. Yeah, I like that. I think we talk about kind of the importance of being a lifelong learner. And we assume that like education people embrace this idea, part of why they got an education. And reading books is one of the, the best ways we can kind of improve our, our lifelong le learning. Um, and so I, I think that I like that idea of cultivating intellect because it plays in this in this idea of the importance of of text and importance of reading and, um, and and that part of your life and then looking at how does this particular text right impact how I think the, about the world and my own personal growth. Um, it also seems to be with both these first two they seem to be an emphasis maybe on the personal right on the personal identity on the personal growth. Is that is that fair or no? I think so, and I think. I think you could even argue that all four of the tenants are focused on personal and academic growth, because I think you need that identity and intellect piece for the skills and criticality piece. So I think we we grow personally. And then as we grow personally, we are able to grow academically. So I think they're kind of entwined. OK, yeah, that's fair. And I, I, I'm tempted to ask you about kind of state standards now, but I'm going to hold off because I want to get to skills and criticality. Maybe it'll come up more there. But um Talk about cultivating skills and what you found there. It will come up there. Um, <laughs> so this kind of goes back to what I mentioned before about how schools have become very standardized. And actually, I don't know if the word become is correct. I think for the most part, they've been standardized. Mm -hmm. um, and so Muhammad says that rather than skills defining achievement, we should define skills as the competence, ability, and expertise. And this is the key right here based on what educators deem important important for student learning. Um, basically, we're teaching students the skills to access the intellect and the knowledge that they are gaining, right? Um, and so this was the piece during the action research study that I ended up changing in the middle. We started using state standards. 
Um, and we're in Texas, so we were using the teeks. Um, but I started realizing that students were focusing more on the standards than they were on the stories, the characters, or even the HRL um, framework itself, right? They focused so much on the teaks and trying to understand them and see where they could put them that they weren't really thinking about the learning anymore. And so I actually made the decision to take out the state standards, not because we don't have to use them or they're not important. We know that we do, right? But I wanted pre-service teachers to be empowered to understand that they are professionals. They know about literature, right? These are literature majors. Um, they have so many literacy skills. And I wanted them to be empowered to choose the skills that mattered for students for these lessons, for these texts, and for these students' growth. Um, and so uh, six out of the eight unit plans had a matched skill goal. Um, which is not as successful as the other two, um, but pretty successful if you think about it. Um, and I think that supports the idea of, for that time, putting the standards aside and allowing these pre-service teachers to determine what skills were important. And if I were to go back into their unit plans right now, I could attach TEKS mm -hmm. and standards to all of them. So it's not that we discounted the standards, it's that we put them aside to make room to think about what skills really are in a less standardized way. Yeah, this has been a point of contention personally for me <laughs> amongst talking to administrators in schools and um, and kind of how we how we go about this. And it's almost like, Sometimes I think we need to start with our students in mind and then the text in mind and then go back and say kind of what standards are we hitting as we focus on the students in the text. But some people argue we should start with the standards in mind and then make that text um, and our students fit into that standard that we already have established, kind of what comes first. Um, and I, I think if we're focused on student-centered instruction, I think the students should come first. And then, because you're right, I would argue any really engaging kind of critical, thoughtful lesson those standards are broad enough, you're going to hit multiple standards. Um, but if you overly focus on the standards, it kind of limits, I think, how you read a text and how you approach a text. Um, so that's, it's encouraging to hear you say that because the standards are important and we need that kind of, I think, that framework. Um, but also, I think we should focus with our students in mind. Um, and if we are teaching the skills that our students need, we're definitely going to be hitting those standards. Mm -hmm. And all of that critical thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last one. So they're pretty good with the skills. Now to criticality. Can you, what does that mean? And, and what did you find out? So Mohammed um, delineates that there's criticality with a lowercase c and criticality with an uppercase c. Um, and criticality with a lowercase c is to think deeply about something. That's the criticality that we're very much used to in education across the board. We want students to think critically, right? Deeply. What she introduces um, is to think critically with a capital C, which is an understanding of power, entitlement, um, oppression, equity, inequity. Um, and this is, this is really important, helping students discern between facts and truth, mm -hmm. right? Um, because there is a difference, but you have to think critically with a capital C and look at our systems and the inequity that is sustained by them to figure out the difference between the facts and the truths. Um, and so to match this learning goal, um, to match Muhammad's definition, the pre-service teachers needed to write a learning goal that helps students understand societal issues in the context of that YA text. Um, 
but then could also be transferred to their community, to their lives, and then ultimately working toward change, kind of, um, not kind of, empowering students that let's figure out the issue. What can you do, right? What did the characters in the book do? What can you do? Um, so this one was the least matched, um, four out of eight. So only half of the unit plans had a goal that successfully matched. They all attempted, but that successfully matched that definition. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for this. I think first, um, many of the students, I think got a little confused, not confused, but they were having trouble knowing the difference between intellectualism and criticality. Because with criticality, you are still learning about these systems, right? Like, and so that connects to intellectualism, but they missed the piece about equality and inequality or oppression. Um, and so that is the piece that was missing in that one. So it ended up being intellectualism. And then another one is they definitely... Um, we're working hard to understand the difference between criticality with a lowercase c, criticality with an uppercase c, um, but again, didn't get to that societal transformation piece. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you haven't begun exploring your privileges, um, the systems that you live within, the systems that you uphold, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, if you haven't started that individual work, that anti-racist work, then it's going to be hard for you to understand criticality with a capital C. And it's going to be hard for you to guide someone else in doing that work. Um, and so I can't, I'm generalizing a little bit, um, but knowing my students, if they haven't started that work, it is very hard. It would be very hard for them to lead someone else through it. Yeah. that I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. The, I, I mean, the, the lowercase c it's something we do in English class all the time, right? We encourage um, students to think deeply about the text meaning, how it applies to their lives. But that capital C is not something that we that they've probably experienced when they were in school. And it's it's yeah, it's more nuanced, it's more complex, it's it takes more kind of self-awareness, it takes more awareness of the world that we live in. And not everyone kind of on that journey is is at that same place to to be able to kind of understand themselves, let alone teach it to others. So that makes perfect sense that that our pre-service teachers um, are not all there yet at the capital C. All right. So I have some other questions to get to kind of based on your work um, in this specific study, but also just kind of your experience in in reading and, and, and teaching and um, kind of what you learned from it. Uh, I want to first challenge some assumptions here. So I guess an assumption of this kind of study is that YA texts are valuable to bring into the classroom. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you think we should be teaching more YA texts? And, and how, how, I mean, this is something I struggle with. How, how do we balance that traditional canon that we're encouraged to teach and draw from with bringing YA texts in the classroom? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um Kind of a, the first question, so why should we be teaching? And I think that researchers and teachers for years have been have been proving and showing this, right? Um, but our instructional resources need to mirror students' lives for many different reasons. Um, they need to see that literacy pertains to them, um, that they are valued, um, right? There's that personal aspect of it mirroring their lives, but then there's also that as I mentioned before, like when you get to the criticality, it has to, it, 
it's easier to connect to and think about those systems because they're systems that you're living in. Like the YA texts are happening right now in this world, right? And even if they're not, even if it's like a fantasy YA text, they still connect to societal issues today. Um, and it feels very relevant. And so I think that's the first thing. Um, I think it also would, YA texts bridge that gap between in-school literacy and out-of-school literacy, which I think needs to happen to create readers, right? We want to create a society of readers. Um, and that's actually one of my notes down here that I have next is we have to stop creating a society of non-readers, right? Yeah. Um, and so I would also argue, do we have to balance YA text with the canon? And sometimes you need to teach what's in your book room because the reality is money, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can't always buy new sets of books, um, but then we have to think about how are we reading those books? Um, are we reading them critically with a capital C or are we making, sorry, reading them critically with a capital C and making these issues relevant, which they are, or are we kind of telling students what's in them? And that's a very different classroom, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, because you get to the point where students are kind of at the, at the advocacy, advocacy stage and they feel empowered, mm -hmm. like that's, they have to feel like they have a voice and they're not going to do that if you just kind of told them, here's how you should think about this issue. They have to feel it themselves to, to, to get to that point. Um, you also um, brought up this idea of, of creating non-readers and, and some of the kind of most depressing uh, studies in my lit review, um, going back to the reading habits of English teachers, was looking at the point where young people are turned off to reading and they the kind of they labeled the high school English classroom as the moment where they got turned off to reading, um, partly due to the types of texts they were reading, partly due to um, what they were asked to do with the with with those, those readings, and then, I mean a lot of it has to do with I'm sure with kind of where they're at per, per personally in their stage of life too, but it made me so sad that <laughs> this is a time where we should be kind of fostering a love and engagement of reading, and yet somehow we've managed to do the exact opposite. And I know maybe that has something to do with the, the standards and the traditional expectations um, that maybe don't hit love of reading there in that standard. But mm -hmm. goodness, man, we, we, we should be doing work that fosters the love of reading. And so if for no other reason <laughs> for reading why a text and your other reasons are good too, but yeah, we need to foster the love of reading in our classrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you create a nation of non-readers, you create a nation of non-thinkers too, right? Yeah. Um, and so... It's it's so important that students are engaged. And I I would even say that the joy of reading can just be woven into the standards. They don't have to be separate, yeah. right? If you, I mean, let's just take one of the skills that like people talk about a lot in Texas, right? Like inferencing. Um, if you are enjoying reading a book, those inferences are just going to come. They're just going to happen, right? Because you're connected, you're in it. And so that joy of reading really just supports supports the skills and supports and grows student learning even more. So, Yeah, you're right. So, so many of those standards are hit just by becoming a reader. <laughs> You're yeah. doing so many of the things that are, that, that are on the standards. Um, all right. So when, when you talk about teaching YA text, right. And that's, I think it's so important because again, and I'm guilty of this um, where I, I don't um, even like how to teach a text, right. I teach English methods students come in and you talk about, well, how do we teach a novel, right? They know how to read it. How do we teach a novel? They often fall back into, into mirroring whatever they, they saw in, in high school. And so 
Um, and then we talk about kind of how to teach theme and how to teach character development. Um, but, but, but this, I think, calls for a, a very different approach, a much more um, specific approach that really kind of aligns and puts the text and the students more at the, the center of the, of the teaching. Um, would you say this uh, historical responsibility framework works for some of the canonical texts? Can, can we take these things and apply to canonical texts? Or would you argue this is a kind of a YA-specific way of teaching? No, I think it, I think it works for all texts. And um, in Cultivating Genius, Goldie Muhammad does mention YA texts, but she actually focuses more on other texts, even like mm -hmm. historical pieces. And it's getting to that idea of um, thinking about the tenets within and outside of those texts, right? Um, and so I think it works with all texts. Um, yeah. All right. Um, how do, we, uh, one of my questions is this idea of kind of going back to, to the standards. Um, I think this idea of identity, um, intellect, uh, even criticality are, are, are really important. Um, but it does seem like the standards emphasize maybe more of, or, or more of a skill side. Mm -hmm. So how, when you're preparing teachers to go into classrooms, how do we balance the amount of time we spend teaching things like identity, teaching things like intellect versus teaching kind of the the more, more of the concrete skills that we're expected to teach in the classroom? How do we balance that? So, I mean, as we know, teaching is the art of balancing, right? <laughs> like, it's nothing if not that. And so I think that we make time for what we think is important. Um, like, when we're as teachers in our personal lives, whatever it is. And so... At the end of the day, I still think that the standards that we, the state tells us that we need to be teaching really align with all of these things. Because the first thing we do every school year is we learn about students' identities, right? Mm -hmm. We create relationships. Um, but the HRL framework just allows us to take it, take that step that we're already doing in ELA and continue it in our learning, right? So let's even look a little deeper. Let's look at other people's identities, which then leads us to the intellect. And it doesn't always have to be these in this specific timeline order, right? Yeah. But if you think about it, we start with identity, we start learning through intellect, through identity and intellect. Then by the time we get to the skills, we've already started using some of those skills. So the ones we haven't, we can teach explicitly, right? They're so, and the standards just fit right in there. And then once you get to criticality, you're thinking so deeply about systemic issues and the world we live in mm -hmm. that I think you've maybe gone past the standards, which is a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so I really think that the standards can be taught within the HRL framework without giving up pieces of the HRL framework because each one is so important. Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes sense. Um, I think one of the, one of the criticisms with the YA texts is they're perceived as being maybe less rigorous or less serious than the canonical texts that we traditionally use in our classrooms. Um, your 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 thoughts on that? I think this. What would you argue that your responsibility framework can bring rigor, or would you argue that there's inherently rigor here with the young adult text? Um, what about this argument that we need more rigor in the classroom, and does YA text achieve that rigor? Um, 
So I won't get on my soapbox about this for too long, but first I have to think we have need to have a common definition of rigor, right? Yeah, that's a, what a, that a rigor. What, what do you mean yeah, by rigor? Like, yes. do you just want everything to be harder or do you want it to be meaningful learning? Yeah. And so I think that YA text and any well-written text ultimately have rigor already in them. It depends on how you use them. I could argue that with a canonical text, um, let's just go back to The Great Gatsby, right? If the students aren't really reading it and you're explaining it to them, there is no rigor there at all. In fact, there's not even learning happening. Like the base of learning isn't even happening. Um, As Penny Kittle says, if there's no reading, there's no learning, right? Right. And so I think that there is a lot of rigor and let me go to say that YA texts, just like every other genre, have texts that I would use in a classroom and texts that I would use for personal reading, right? There's some that we put on the classroom shelf um, and then some that we see that inherent rigor in them and we see how it connects to students' lives and will take us to the criticality. And so I think that if you read YA texts far and wide, you see that rigor and the possibilities of it. Um, I think it just takes really digging into it and um, rethinking it as we've been talking for years about rethinking adolescence, like YA and adolescence. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, I think even, even, uh, I mean, we, we go back in the middle school and elementary texts, depending on what you're doing with those texts, you can create, I mean, I've used, I've used frog and toad, right? Of Wang's methods and we got real critical mm-hmm. with it and looked at it through critical lenses. And I think you can do a lot of stuff with it. Um, so yeah, it's not just the text, kind of what you do with the text. And you're right, if, if, if they don't even read the text, <laughs> it's going to be the most rigorous text that's out there, but no one reads it. Well, yeah, then they're rigorous. just hard. They're not rigorous, right? They're just hard. And when yeah. they're just hard, um, if students don't feel successful, then, and I'll speak for myself, I don't have to generalize, like, I was one of those people in high school that I was an avid reader, but the text felt too hard, and I didn't have a connection to them, so I just didn't read them. Um, And so, you know, like even our students who are reading outside of school, they still need to have some connection to what we're doing in school. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, It seems like, I mean, we talked about the hardest one to get students to is that capital C criticality, Mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because not just pre-service teachers, I think people in general, (laughs) it's the hardest for us to get there. Um, Do you have any, this is a big impossible question, but do you have any advice on um, or strategies to help people move more in that capital C criticality direction? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think first, if you want to move in that direction, I think the important thing is to start looking inward. Um, start looking at your own identity. Um, in courses, I use um, Tiffany Jewell's um, anti-racist YA book, Um I can't think of the name of it, but I can, um, becoming an anti-racist, um, So we use that and we go through our identities and we think about systemic inequalities and how we either uphold the system or um, how the system is not good for for certain identities. And so I think that's important is that vulnerability in figuring out where you fit in in that system and thinking about who you are. Um, And I think it's something that we need to make space for in teacher education, too. Um, And so I think that is really the starting point is starting with yourself and then figuring out um, if we're speaking about educators, like how does that go? What are you bringing into the classroom? Right. Yeah. I like that begins with some identity work. Right. And it also begins with reading, right. Too. Um, I think for, for me, like one, one of the kind of my journey and becoming kind of more self-aware and more re- aware of the 
if you will, the criticality and more aware of kind of the, the systematic um, issues going on, at least around education, was was reading. Um, the, the kind of being immersing myself in some of the the literature around around this. And I think, yeah, I think part part of our job maybe too is to point young people in the right direction as far as reading material and um, and where they can go to to think more deeply about it. Um, when when we do these things, though, Heather, when we when we bring some criticality into the classroom, um, as someone who taught English for 14 years, um, there can be some pushback because this gets met, mixed in with politics when we talk about criticality. Um, I mean, I can say I'm teaching at the college level now, so I'm allowed to say critical race theory, but goodness knows if I would go into, into high school and say that, there would be an email from a parent the next day. Um, and what you're talking about here is asking us to ask, kind of do those critical ways of thinking. Um, and so as we prepare pre-service teachers to go into public school, but there could potentially be pushback for some of these ways of thinking, um, how do you prepare pre-service teachers to, to, to do this work? So, and I, I don't, gosh, again, speaking from someone who teaches and lives in Texas, it's, it's not, will there be pushback? It's <laughs> There's going to be pushback. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about how to deal with this. And so we have some really um, vulnerable and human conversations in um, teacher education classrooms, in my classrooms, about what to do, because there isn't a cookie cutter answer for this, right? Um, this is something that we know and have known for years based on Gloria Letts and Billings work and, and all of this work that's been done well before us, that this has needed to happen. Um, and so, yes, the pushback will come. But at the end of the day, I think we need to do a couple of things. I think we need to ask why. Um, because as as teachers, I think we get into the system of teacher education and then we get into K-12 schools and we don't aren't generally shown that we also have a voice and know what we're doing. We just kind of are expected to do what we're told. Right. And so the first step into figuring that out is to ask why. If someone wants to get rid of my classroom library, like I would really like to know why you want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. If someone is opposed to all students talking about their identities, their racial backgrounds, their ethnicities, their likes and dislikes, I again want to know why, right? Now, that doesn't mean that the pushback goes away once you figure out why, but it does help you as a teacher to understand where it's coming from. And the why is going to go, as you stated, it's political. Education is political, right, Freire? Um, and so that why is going to lead you to different places, kind of straight to the legislator, but it's going to lead you to different yeah. places and you're going to better understand where it's coming from and better understand your options in navigating that world, right? Um, now, when it comes back, comes down to that pushback that you're going to get right away, you know, from parents or admin um, or even some of your students, um, I think what you do about that depends on your level of privilege, right? So as a white female educator, I have a high level of privilege to be able to say things and engage in this work. And I am not ostracized as much as maybe an educator of color would be. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a lot of privilege, we are going to need those people, us, <laughs> to mm -hmm. really start pushing harder. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we just have to remember that our hands are never tied completely, right? You might not have the privilege of just saying, I'm going to do whatever I want in this classroom. Um, because 
we can't all just lose our job, right? Like it, it doesn't, it's not that easy. Um, but we know what's worth fighting for. And so how can you do this work in small ways, moving everything forward without necessarily like, if you don't have those privileges pushing so hard that there are, you know, ramifications. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I like that idea of understanding the why from the other side. I, I I tend to always think about, well, I know my why and why I'm doing it. But I think we also need to understand why other people are opposed. Um, in my experience, and I, I taught, again, 14 years in Maryland, so it was maybe less pushback than Texas, but still uh, pushback. And um, every time there was pushback and I sat down with a parent or called a parent to talk to my phone, almost every single time, I think every time, yeah, every time, it was resolved through kind of conversation understanding. I think sometimes because the way it becomes politicized, kind of you gotta kind of you kind of get put in these extreme camps on either side. And when you kind of I think talk through your reasoning for a text and hearing their concerns while they express why why their concerns and being able to kind of understand and sympathize with those concerns and kind of talk about those concerns with them, I think there is a place here for mutual understanding. I don't think you're calling for anything here that's so subversive that is um, that it that warrants parents being scared for like their child's intellectual purity or something, right? I mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're calling for something as extreme as that, and I, I think sometimes the the message gets lost in kind of extreme headliners or something, and I think through conversation with parents, in my experience, a lot of this stuff can be can be addressed that way, and. I would even say, like, what is intellectual purity, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because at home, your students are getting stuff. They're they're learning a lot at home too, and so I think at the end of the day, when we start, like, for example, in my classes, when I start using the word white supremacy, people get very uncomfortable, right? Yeah. When I say white people, my students get very uncomfortable. And so when you get uncomfortable, our tendency is to shut down. But rather than shutting down, let's try to, and this is what I ask my students, is I want you to think about why you feel uncomfortable, where it's coming from, um, and why that matters, right? And how you're bringing that to your everyday life. And so um, maybe it's even I don't know, maybe in Texas, maybe it's even working with parents, right? This is another piece of that culturally um, responsive education that we maybe don't do as great a job with as we could community, yeah. right? Because I think you're right. I think there are some divisive um, individuals, but overall, I think parents want what is best for their kids and for their education and for all kids' education. Um, and so I think that talking about these things and working through them together could actually be very meaningful for a lot of people and communities. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I, I yeah, I just, I, I think, I think a, a lot of this discussion gets, um, gets kind of put in these extreme positions where they, they don't need to be. What? A, um, I'm also wondering now that we're talking, Heather, and I just, I've seen, I know there's a lot of current teachers out there who, and even me, like in my early teaching days, like I was not prepared or equipped kind of to teach these young adult texts that have these very serious societal discussions around them. Like I wasn't well equipped to do it. I would just kind of put them in reading groups. You read it and we'll do the generic, what's the theme, what's the character development stuff. Um, Because I wasn't prepared. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, I, I worry sometimes about teachers who are not prepared 
um, including kind of my past self, teaching these really kind of, um, I don't want to say controversial, but, but teaching these, these texts that have really important kind of big issues and being not prepared to do it. And so then it can become even more problematic. Like I've seen it happen. I've seen, you know, teachers teach texts, um, a young, young, young adult text, and it become kind of problematic in the way that they teach it. Um, how do we address what's currently happening in the classrooms? Do we say <laughs> some teachers should not be teaching white text right now? Or do we need more professional development in this area? Like, I, I don't know, but I feel like there's also this problem. You're talking about pre-service teachers here, mm-hmm. but with in-service teachers being equipped to teach some of these white texts, any thoughts or advice for, for teachers there? Yeah. So first, I'm not calling for more professional development. (laughs) 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 Come after me, right? (laughs) However, I think, I think that everyone, every teacher, I don't believe that teachers get up in the morning and are like, I'm going to do some harm today, right? Like, I don't, I don't believe that that happens. I do think that teachers are going in and doing the best that they can. But what I think we need to ask ourselves is, are we, are we really doing the best that we can? Have I done the personal work to be able to have these conversations? Have I read enough to understand the societal issues to understand these conversations? Have I, and this is key, have I learned how to hold discussions about societal issues, mm-hmm. about race, and all these other things in my classroom? All of the isms, right? Because yeah. there is a way to do that. Um, like Matthew Kay's book, um, Light Not Fire. That one opened my eyes to how we are perpetuating conversations that just continue to say the same thing, but we're not really getting anywhere. Um, and so I think that it's a matter of wanting to, when we want to bring these in and make this education more relevant for our students and create that culturally responsive classroom, it has to start with who we are because the classroom really does start with the teacher, right? And there's been so much research that shows that the teacher is one of the most important factors in students' um, achievement. And so in, in that class or that grade, And so I think we have to start with ourselves and then how does that play into our classroom? What do we know and not know? Um, And where do we go from there? And sorry to add to that. I think we can do that in pre-service teacher classrooms to where it's not. So I was the same as um, a young teacher. Like I, I had a lot of conversations that were not great because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, But we know that. And now those are the things we can bring into methods classrooms. Those are the things, right? Like I can bring in cultivating genius into a methods classroom. I can also bring in a dis- how to discuss these uncomfortable or hard conversations, right? Um, and so now that, not now that we know, <laughs> known, um, yeah. I think that's where teacher education has to make a change. What are we valuing in teacher education? Is it more important to give a strategy or is it more important to lay a foundation of culturally responsiveness that they can then go and find strategies that fit within that foundation. Yeah, I think I think that's well said because even when they're in their classroom, listen, I feel like teachers don't need more strategies, right? Like when they're in the classroom, they're gonna be exposed to all these strategies. Every if they want another strategy, just go down the hall and shout at the strategy. And and so I think, yeah, I think asking bigger questions, um, and then you can fit those strategies in later, um, but ask these bigger questions about 
um, your own self-awareness and what, your comfortability and how do you engage in the conversations. Um, and I like that you're doing, um, you mentioned, uh, uh, what is it, Light Not Fire? Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate you uh, dropping some names here for, for us to read as well um, as we think about these issues. So so, so kind of let, let me kind of wrap up the conversation here. Let's say I am a, a teacher. I'm a teacher educator, right? I want to start doing this more in my classroom or I'm an English teacher and I want to start to use perhaps this historically responsive literacy framework. Where would you advise um, I start as a pre-service teacher and, and, a, and a teacher in a classroom? Where would you advise that they start? Mm-hmm. So first, I would advise to just read. Like, just get yourself some of the newest YA books and just start reading, right? Because you can't do any of this work unless you're a reader of YA literature. Um, and so, I well, sorry, you can do a lot of this work without YA literature, but to put it together with that culturally responsive classroom, you need to read it. And so I'd say start reading. I would say start learning and unlearning um, for yourself about the society we live within, about yourself, about education. Um, because once you start learning about the foundations of education in our country, um, you start recognizing a lot of stuff that you didn't recognize as a mm-hmm. beginning teacher, right? And so mm-hmm. if we can do that with beginning teachers even, that's amazing too. And I would say, so if I was talking to a teacher in Texas who right now might not be able to bring in a new YA text because it's on a banned book book list, right? I would say start with shorter pieces, Um, not test prep kind of short pieces, but short stories, literary nonfiction. There are so many good YA anthologies out there now, and um, they are rigorous. They are relevant. They are inclusive. They are fantastic. Um, and I can even um, like put together a list if you want to that we can link. Um, okay, sure. I think those anthologies are really a great place to start because time is of the essence, right? Um, but, and you might not be able to get new novels or bring in one that your school district is thinking about, but you can do shorter pieces. Um, and then the last thing I would say is start looking at everything with a lens of criticality, right? So if you can't teach the YA text and you have to stick with the canon, um, how are we reading that with a lens of criticality? When you do read YA text, still with a lens of criticality, and how are we transferring all of that into the way we're looking at our society and making connections to our real lives um, while and after we're reading? Yeah, it's really good advice, Heather. Um, Yeah, I love how you began with reading. Um, and ended what we talked about a lot in here about kind of applying that criticality and thinking through that critical or seeing kind of what we're reading through that critical lens. Good stuff, Heather. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested in this article or in these, this discussion, I encourage you to take a look at our article. That's linked in the show notes. Um, Dr. Heather Poole, thank you so much for spending some time and talking to me about, these, about this topic. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure.